Today's message comes from James chapter 1, 13 through 18. <clears throat> Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this day that you have made. Uh, be with Brother Matt as he brings us your word. Change our hearts today and give us boldness to proclaim the gospel in the upcoming week. Uh, be with us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. <clears throat> Good morning. I don't know if maybe you've heard of uh, the man who was on a diet and struggling. Maybe that sounds like some of you. I'm not sure. He had gone downtown and he started out and he remembered that on his route, uh, it would take him by a donut shop. And as he got closer, he thought that a cup of coffee would really hit the spot. But then he remembered his diet. But then he prayed, Lord, if you want me to have a donut and coffee, let there be a parking spot open right at the door, right in front. And he said, sure enough, I found a parking place right in front by the door on my seventh time around the block. <laughs> One author said, most people want to be delivered from temptation but would like to keep it in touch. James here is, is talking just on that very issue. And he begins here in verse 13. And notice what he says in verse 13. He doesn't say if we... If he is tempted, but when he is tempted. The fact is that you're going to face temptation every single day of your life. You're going to be confronted by several thousand commercials every day, whether on billboards, television, newspaper, magazine, radio, internet, social media, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, you name it. And somewhere along the line, somebody or something is going to advertise for you to buy into something that you shouldn't think, something you shouldn't plan, something you shouldn't see, something you shouldn't say, or something you shouldn't do. Every day when you get out of bed, you will face a test of integrity that will try to chip away at your character while you have the every intention of reinforcing it. And just like your children, especially when they're little, they're going to get up in the morning and almost immediately test you in some way to see if the boundary has shifted during the night. Did anything change while you were sleeping? It was a no yesterday. Will it be a yes today? So also temptation is going to come back again and again to see if the gates are still locked, if the windows are still closed, if the front door is still closed to all of its advances. It wants to find out if no turned into maybe into I'll think about it, into sure, why not? The first thing that we see here in verse 13 is 
that of blame, playing the blame game. You think of Christians, Christians surely, we, we don't blame God, right? We would never do that. Maybe not openly, but how many Christians would be tempted to say, if God had given me a better job, I wouldn't be so greedy. If God had inter- intervened for me earlier, I wouldn't be so angry. If God had just changed something about my heredity, my, my environment, my education, my income, my geography, I, I would be a better person. And this is the way God made me, is, is another way of, of blaming God if we're not careful. And it's exactly, by the way, it's exactly what Adam did in Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, in verse 11, Adam and Eve had already fallen in sin and were confronted by God. And in verse 9, God asks, where are you? And Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And what does God say in verse 11? He says, who told you you were naked? Have you ever eaten the, the, have you eaten the tree wherever I've commanded you not to do and that you should not eat? What did Adam say? Yes, I did that. I, I'm guilty. It was all me. I take responsibility for my own actions. What, what does he say? The woman whom you gave me, she gave me the tree, the fruit, and I did eat, and I ate. Whose fault was it? Well, it was suggests that it was the woman. I mean, after all, I went to sleep one night. I never knew even a woman even existed, and I woke up in the next morning married to one. Didn't even know what a woman was. But the real issue here is not blaming Eve. The statement, the woman whom what? You gave me. Whose fault was it? It was God's fault. You could have picked any woman you wanted. Why pick her? Why did you make a woman who would do that? By the way, Adam is not the only one who would come up with these excuses and, and say these things as well. Eve did the same thing in verse 13 when she was confronted by the very same question. What did she say? Yeah, I'm guilty. I did it. No. She said, no, it was the serpent deceived me and I did eat. I'm a victim just like my husband or something that you created. I, I was in a wonderful garden and all of a sudden a snake showed up. I didn't make the snake. I didn't cause the snake to talk. The blame is placed on God, and ever, and it's been that way ever since. God made me. God made me with my sinfulness. God made me with my circumstances. God put me in the situation I'm in in marriage. God gave me my surroundings. God, God created the scene. It's not my fault. Isaiah 63, 17 has an interesting statement. It says, Oh Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? God, why do you cause me to wander? Why is your fault that it's happening to me? What a terrible thing to blame God for your sin. But it's the tendency of fallen man ever since the beginning. Are you blessing God today or are you blaming James goes on to say in verse 13, For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself is not tempted to anyone. It's interesting to discover that the word test and tempt, as previous in, in verse 12, they come from the same 
root in the Greek language, but here's the difference. Satan tempts us to defeat us. God tempts us to develop us. You can translate that God never solicits anyone to do what is morally wrong. One Greek scholar explained it this way. God permits the circumstances of temptation, but never prompts anyone to sin. God will never deliberately lead you to commit sin, for that would be contrary to his present desire to have his children to be conformed to the image of his son. God does not prompt you to yield to temptation. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that he will provide a way to escape it. So in other words, God has nothing to do with tempting someone to sin. In fact, James says this, God cannot tempt, be tempted by evil. Immediately, that statement should raise maybe a question. I thought Christ was tempted in all points as we were yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15, he was. But I thought Jesus was God incarnate, he is. But Jesus was tempted for 40 days by the devil in the wilderness. And a matter of fact, throughout his whole entire ministry, he was tempted. He was. But it says here that God cannot be tempted. He does. But if Jesus is God and Jesus was tempted, but here it says God can't be tempted, it raised some questions, right? It does. And that's why next week Brad's going to come and, and answer that question. No. <laughs> Just kidding. That's why the beauty of the original language is so important. The New Testament was written in Greek. And to understand that and understand this section in particular, you have to go back to the original language. And what's interesting is that uh, the words cannot be tempted translated in one Greek word that is not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament but right here in this, in this verse. And it carries the idea of being without the capacity of temptation. In other words, when tempted... He, does, he doesn't have anything within his nature to correspond to it. One author uh, wrote this, God is aware of evil but untouched by it. Like a sunbeam shining on a trash heap is unaffected by its stench. The other question you may have then is if Christ is unable to sin, not just that he wouldn't but that he couldn't sin, which is called the impeccability of, of Christ, that Christ couldn't sin. Well, if that's true, then how is Jesus able to sympathize as our high priest when, when we go through temptation because he was tempted like we were? I think it's important to understand uh, what it's, the theology term is the hyperstatic union of Christ, that he was 100% fully God and he was 100% fully man. He had two natures. He had a divine nature and a human nature. Not a sinful nature, but a human nature. And his human nature could be tempted as it clearly was. A classic example of that is Luke chapter 4 when he is tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan. Satan tempts him three times while he's there. 40 days Christ goes without food. I dare say there probably is not anyone in here that's gone 40 days without food. If so, kudos, that's, that's great. But, but here, he goes 40 days without food. And can you imagine, obviously, him being a man, he is hungry. Being the human nature, having the human nature, he has needs, he is hungry. And what does Satan do? Satan tempts him, turns these stones, turn these stones into bread. Be a little self-serving just once. 
What's the harm in that? You're hungry. Hunger is a God-giving need. So meet your need. Meet it in your own way. What does Jesus do? He quotes scripture. Effectively saying to the devil, life isn't about satisfying our needs. Life is about obeying the word of God. And each time that he was tempted, he came back with Satan, with quoting Deuteronomy each time. He didn't rest in his deity, he rested in his humanity. And what a great example for us to follow as well when we are tempted and facing temptation. And then James goes on here in the next few verses and talks about uh, that of temptation. What goes into temptation or being tempted? And the first ingredient that we have here and that he gives us is desire. He says, but each one is tempted when he is carried away or lured away and enticed by his own lusts, his own desire. James writes, but each one is tempted. In the original language, it literally means each one of a, each one is uniquely tempted. What does that mean? It means this, that each person, is, each individual is uniquely tempted when they are enticed by their own individual desires. Temptation for you will be uniquely different than anyone else. What I am tempted of may be different than you. What you're tempted of may be different from me. And although we are uniquely created with an, with an individual will and, 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 and way, uh, you could even call it genetically bent, a personality or a temperate um, that resonates with a certain sin, we cannot excuse our sinful behavior because of it. We simply cannot commit a sin and then say, that's ah, just the way I am. In other words, a person can be uniquely drawn to a struggle of alcoholism or pornography or adultery or homosexuality or gluttony and on and on. But here's the difference. That doesn't change what God considers sinful behavior. God's standards remain the same for everyone. No matter how you're wired, no matter what your personality is, no matter what your temperament is like. And this is important because the way you face of, of the way we face temptation, because the world, the flesh, and the devil, they they know they've done their homework and they know our bend and what we struggle with. One author put it this way. We know that professional football teams spend a lot of time studying their opponent's game film, looking for weaknesses and tendencies they can exploit. Players will study films of their individual opponents looking for little advantages they can use in the upcoming game. Let me tell you something. This is what he says. Satan has a game film on you and me. He is aware of our weaknesses. He has learned over time our tendencies to sin. He knows that if he can recreate the temptation that led us to sin before, there's a great chance that we'll fall for it again. And here, James says, is how it happens. Verse 14, we're carried away, we're lured away and enticed. James uses a, he comes out and uses a hunting experience here. Lured means to be lured by scent of meat in a trap. Enticed refers to bait on a line used as a fisherman. The idea is to hide the trap but expose the bait. 
to disguise the hook and, and look like something other than an instrument of capture and of certain death. No fish swam around the lake. And Reese, you could correct me if this, Reese is the fisherman here. But no fish swims around the lake searching for hooks, just looking for hooks, the shiniest one. Oh, that one's made out of stainless steel. I think I'll do that one. No, they swim around looking for a meal. And Satan knows this in the world and the flesh. And they use and disguise the hook to get you to believe that you're getting a free meal and it's going to taste wonderful. And before you know it, you're hooked and you're caught in the trap. Bonhoeffer, in his book entitled Temptation, describes it this way. With irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It makes no difference whether it's sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love, fame, power or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Whilst we lose all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Then he says this, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. How true that is. When we are in the grip of lust, God is never more distant. We forget who we are and who God is and what he says in his word. How true is that with the Old Testament when you look at the children of Israel? Time and time again, they found themselves in situations and problems and difficulties that they shouldn't find themselves in. They shouldn't be in. And that's why time and time again, Moses has to remind the people, don't forget God. You're, you're at where you're at because you've forgotten his goodness. You've forgotten his promise. You've forgotten who he is. You've lost the awe and the wonder of him. And if we're not careful, we could do the same. So the first is desire. The second ingredient here is disobedience. That leads to disobedience. In verse 15, And when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. In other words, when the fish bites, when it acts upon the lure, when his will is set in motion to full desire, to fulfill his desire, James writes that sin occurs. James actually changes his illustration here from the hunt to a hospital delivery room. One author said this, James personifies his progression of temptation turning into sin. Desire is attracted to and finally decides to run with disobedience. Desire conceives by disobedience and then has a child, and the child's name is sin. When you connect, when, when your will connects with your desire and you choose to think or act in disobedience, ends up giving birth to sin. And then we move from from sin or desire to disobedience to ultimately the outcome, death, in verse 15. James goes on to write in verse 15, when sin is accomplished, that is, when it reaches maturity, it brings forth death. James indicates that sin is, that this sin is kept, it's cherished, it's followed 
and all while it matures, bringing forth the destruction after destruction. I believe here James isn't just talking about a physical death because sinners can live a very long time after ultimately dying. I don't believe he's talking about here necessarily a spiritual death because Christians sin. I believe he's talking about a, a death-like ex- existence. This is the self-destruction that David, who wrote uh, that he was literally being consumed by unrepentant heart and life, as he wrote in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. My strength was drained away as with the heat of summer. Even though sin brings relief or applause or friendship or pleasure, James says it's temporary. It's ultimately going to lead to death. A great way to illustrate this oftentimes is that of sexual sins. And a great illustration of this is found in Proverbs 7. If you recall in Proverbs 7, it introduced us to a young man who was foolish who is caught up in the lusts and desires of his own heart, and he sees a woman, a prostitute, and how she is dressed and the way she is, is, is presenting herself. He's, he's even more and more, um, lust is creeping more and more in his heart. Everything seems to be falling into place because it even says that her husband is away. She's all by herself, and she's enticing him to come to her. And in verse 21, it says this, With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. She entices him. All at once, he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. And it concludes here in this chapter. For many victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. You remember the old saying, sin will take you further than you want to go. Sin will cost you more than you wanted to stay. And sin will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. James here is is putting it all together, and he ends here at verse 16 um, encouraging the believers here not to be deceived to to watch out remember who James is talking to remember who he's writing to he's writing to those Christians who are literally running for their lives he's writing to Christians who quite frankly has questions probably has questions, has doubts that it could be easily deceived why is God bringing us through this? Why my, I've seen brothers and sisters all around me being killed. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening? James is encouraging. He is reinforcing. He says, look, don't be deceived. Don't fall in Satan's trap. Don't do that. Don't allow yourself to go there. And in the midst of all that, and everything that seems or may be going wrong and when it comes to temptation, God opens the door and says, listen, I've got hope for you. I've actually got something better for you than what temptation offers. And we find that in the next two verses. In the next two verses here, James focuses on truth. He focuses on resting in the goodness of God and resting in God's grace. So let's look at that together and we'll be, we'll be done. Every good gift, as it says here, every good thing is given to us 
forgiven, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The truth is, when we're in grip of temptation, we forget the promise of God to provide for us what is truly good. Temptation says, eat the fruit, you'll be better off. God's holding out on you. Why wait? This is everything you've been looking for. And James reminds us, God is committed to giving to us what is truly good. And if it comes from him, it's never a trap. It's not death, but life. You can trust him. A matter of fact, he goes on to say in this verse, whom there is no uh, variance or variation or shifting shadow. James is referring to the shadow cast by the movements of the earth and the sun and the moon. James is saying God is the father of lights. That is, he is the creator of the lights and the heavens. But there aren't always available. There are still times when we have no light. But with God, it says, there is no variation. There is never a shadow. There is no turning. That is, he never turns away from you. In John, it says, there is no darkness at all in him, 1 John 1.5. God does not have a dark side. He does not change. You can depend on his character to give you what is good and what is right. Not only are we given hope and joy if we rest in God's goodness, but, but James says that we should also rest in the grace of God. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, we see here, he's brought us forth by the word of truth. By his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth. James is referring here to our spiritual birth. By the will of God through the word of truth, which is what? The gospel of Christ. Notice what James does not say. That God brought us forth by the exercise of our will. The foundational cause of my salvation was not me. It was not you. It was the exercise of his will, his cause. We see here the sovereignty of God and his grace that he gives. It was through God's gracious will that he brought us forth. He saved us according to God's plan, by God's power, and for God's purpose. And then we see here in the, in the Jewish feasts, there were often three feasts that were custom in the day. The Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits. The first fruits took place on the first day of the week following the Passover. And they would go out into the fields and they would gather the harvest and they would bring it in. And it was important because the first time they brought that in, as the first fruits would be a determination of what would be to come for that year, for that season. If they brought in bad fruit, then that's what they would expect throughout the whole year. But if they brought in good, then it was going to be a good year. James saying here that Christ being our first fruit and that we are our first fruit. James is saying that we are first and the best of his produce. That he will prove faithful. He will care for us year by year, even as he cared, just like he cared for Israel in the wilderness. And then when we fail, our failure teaches us to turn to God for mercy as he offers it through the gospel, through Christ. You belong to the one true living God who will never change toward you who is trustworthy who will provide for you what is good who redeemed you for himself and who is worthy of all our loyalty and all our love 
you'll recall, I don't know if there's any Lord of the Rings fans in here, but in the movie, at the very end, if you recall, uh, Frodo's finally got the ring and Mount of Doom, and he's going to destroy it. And then what happens? He says, no. And Sam is going, please, please, for the survival of all that is good and right and true, destroy the ring. And what happens? It shows Gollum. Shows him there as a normal human being who's fishing with his friend. And when he first comes across the ring, he then kills his friend to get the ring. And at the end, you see Gollum as he shriveled up creature. And all he wants is the ring. And he finally gets it off Frodo's finger as he's falling into the lava. And the ring falls on his finger and he dies with a smile until it turns to horror when he realizes that he's melting. And you see, our desires are just like that ring. They will destroy us and kill us until their spell is broken. We would rather die clutching to what we have, to the desires and the things we're going after, than turn to the Lord. But you see, the beauty of what James, the beauty of what James has taught us here this morning is that God saves us even when we don't desire him. Or God is, and God is so committed to us that he is willing to do whatever it takes to change our desires, even to the point of killing his own son to change our desires. And that's why we can go back to Psalm, Psalm 73 and what Asaph says there in Psalm 73. He says, who am I in heaven but you? Who who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That's the, that's the goal. That's where Jesus is moving you. This is where he wants you to be. That is why he says don't clutch, don't hold on to the wrong desires. Let me be your chief desire and I'll bring everything else back into line. Let's pray.